Welcome to the Who Cares podcast brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at Georgia Southern University. And welcome back to Who Cares. Dr. Ryan Schroeder is still out quarantining and it is my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Elizabeth Resnick. She is an assistant professor of information technology from the Ellen E. Paulson College of Engineering and Computing at Georgia Southern University. Welcome, Dr. Resnick. Hello, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So one thing I want to clarify for our listeners right off the bat is you are an assistant professor of information technology. We also have a department that is involved in computer science. I know for myself as a layperson, I don't really quite understand what the difference in those two is. Um, I'm not sure if it's a hard line, soft line. Could you kind of maybe share a little bit? Sure, so the edge there is a little fuzzy. Um, and I have degrees in computer science and IT, so I love them both. They're, uh, CS tends to be more of the um, algorithms and computationally intensive programming. And IT is more interested in the user experience and the user interaction. So lots of corporations have IT departments, very few have CS departments. So that is a, is a little bit of a mental separator for people. Um, when we have parents come to campus, they recognize IT, but their children who are interested in majoring want to go into computer science. So um, really the programming for computer science tends to be, um, as I said, computationally intensive. And the hardware that they're working with has more to do with the processors, where in the IT department, the hardware they're dealing with is more about laying out the networks um, and looking at who's gonna be able to access what data and when. Okay, so it does sound like, I mean, cause I know from a school system setting, a secondary school system setting, we are often thinking about computer science and then there's this push in Georgia to make computer science accessible to all students, but Again, I think, like you said, that's the connection with coding and computer science, but that there are ways people can go into technology-rich fields through something like information technology without having to necessarily do the coding piece of it. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. I think that's going to open up a lot of opportunities for people um, around the state. So how did you come into this field? Okay, that's a long story. Uh, my bachelor's degree is in computer science and computer science education, uh, and this was a long time ago before it was normal. Um, and this was in Virginia, and they didn't even have a license specifically for computer science. At best, it was an add-on to a math degree. Uh, so from there, um, my first master's is, is in computer science, um, and I loved a lot of the artificial intelligence, um, the topologies for networks, so mapping out where networks are gonna go, um, and also the information flow of things. And then when I was working on my PhD, I, I started looking at information blackouts, so how the information that's traveling in a supply chain winds up getting blocked because of some kind of event. Uh, and then what happens to the rest of the supply chain as a result of that? So while it's, using a supply chain as the environment, the study is really on the information, how it's traveling through the networks and who has access to it and who doesn't. Okay, so I can see 
sort of, and bear with me, this is not my background, where this would be very pertinent and, and important for businesses to understand. Um, but I want to take something back to what you said earlier, which is, you know, when, when you were in CS, it was just sort of this new set of thing. It was an add-on to math education. Um, and, and I gather from that that maybe there aren't a lot of women in this field. Yes, there's a huge gender gap. Um, whether it's CS, IT, um, cybersecurity, there is still a very large gender gap. Okay. So that's something that we should be looking at as educators, too, is you know, how do we get more women involved in these? But if what they're being exposed to in secondary ed is all just the coding piece of it, they may never get to that, to looking at those or being able to look at those supply chain management type of things. Yes. So um, I am actively involved in trying to spread awareness, one, of the gender gap, that it's, that it's definitely there. Um, and how we can attract more um, girls in middle school and then in high school and then the young women that come into college, how we can get them interested in it. And if we stick to nothing but coding, if that's all they ever see, we'll get some, but we won't get enough to close that gap. So what do you have any suggestions for any of our teachers that are listening or parents on how maybe we can encourage girls? Uh, there are lots of different programs out there. So there's Girls Who Code is a really big program. The Girl Scouts now have their, um, they have computing and they also have cybersecurity badges that are out there. So there are lots of programs there. Figure out what the fit is for your student, for your child and get them into, into that. Um, don't forget, computer graphics is huge. And there's a lot of that. As we go to virtual environments and we go to 3D, um, conferences and we start having individual emojis and individual um, characters online as we start doing that we're going to need graphic designers that understand how to do that that's an arts area but it's also a computing area so it's not just about the mathematical background and the coding there are lots of different parts of computer science and it and cybersecurity that can appeal to people from different types of backgrounds that aren't interested in just coding, just programming. Right, because so, I'm beginning to see where this IT piece is really about that user interface, yes. like you said, and that I can have somebody writing a program all day long, but if I, as the end user or even a middle user, don't find it effective um, or user-friendly, so to speak, it, it's pointless. Um, and I think we have so many different things right now, especially in this in virtual learning environment that are being thrown at teachers and students that they, they don't know which one is best to use. And how do we find out what is effective for learning? How do we find out what is effective for supply chain management, for example? And then how do you get people trained on that is so critical. And then, and I'd like you to speak a little to this, once you start getting more and more people using it, where does this, how do we keep the security of a system intact? So that's not a small topic. <laughs> that's a really big topic. Um, there's a whole other can of worms. But cybersecurity has to become part of everyone's daily practice. Um, it, it, it cannot just be managed by a few people in isolated lab spaces. It really has to be something that everyone takes responsibility for every day. Uh, 
cybersecurity literacy is going to be our next literacy wave. So we had traditional literacy and, and reading 100 years ago, and then we got into mathematical literacy um, when we were doing the space race with Kennedy. Um, and then from there, we've developed into more technical fields, but the lifetime of that literacy and the, the time it takes to ramp up gets shorter and shorter and shorter with each of these iterations. So now that everyone's medical records are online, it's now important for everyone to have some basic idea of how to keep their personal information safe, um, how to make sure they understand where to look for it, what to do if there's been a breach, who to contact. Okay. Well, you just have me sitting here thinking about my information and I, I sort of get the impression and, and I'm, I'm guilty as charged on this, when I think about cybersecurity, again, I think of a large-scale hack. I think of you know my credit card company saying some of your information got out, or somebody stealing my credit cards, or stealing my identity. But I, I gather that there's so many more little things that we do or don't do on a daily basis that are really potentially making us vulnerable to these attacks. Because there are people out there, correct me if I'm wrong, whose, whose sole purpose in life is to get your information. Yes, that's their job. There are people that that's how they are living is is by collecting other people's personally identifiable information and then selling it. Um, at the one of the latest wave of um, hacks is actually at high schools. So what's going on is these hackers in other locations are getting into high schools and they're collecting the information about the students at those high schools. And it might be they're using um, an alumni interface or a yearbook ordering interface to get into that database. That's the, the point they use as the entry to get into the database to start collecting that information. Uh, there have been several of those cases reported across the country. So that's one of the things that's going on right now. That's a little scary. It makes me want to go back to you know, the old adage of hiding the money in the mattress. So how do we know? I mean, how is there any way to make yourself 100% secure? And if not, what are what are things I could or should be doing? Because this, this is starting to scare me a little bit. <laughs> right, that, that's the unfortunate part is people do get um, scared and sort of feel like there's nothing they can do about it. Reality is there's no way to keep yourself 100% safe. Um, there just isn't. There's no way to prevent all types of hacks for the entire length of time that your information is out there. Um, but the same could be said of there's no way to guarantee no one will ever break into your car or your house or anything else. So keep a little perspective on it. Uh, you can make sure you keep your information as secure as possible. Um, and that's things like not posting your date of birth online. And a lot of people have done that on social media sites. So if everyone on Facebook is wishing you a happy birthday, that's a piece of your personally identifiable information, a PII, that's out there that anyone can collect. Um, and finding things like your mother's maiden name, which is banks used to use as a pretty standard security method. Well, if you've identified your mother as your mother on Facebook, then it's pretty easy to find out what her maiden name was because she's got a brother or sister or her mother. And so that last name is out there. So it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to collect these little pieces. So you want to keep as much of that to yourself as you can and post uh, as little of that as possible online. So I'm just thinking now, you know, we've, we've 
there's now this pull between social media where, oh, look, my, my hundreds of friends are now wishing me a happy birthday because they know it's my birthday. And me posting nothing relevant <laughs> about myself. Um, you know, because it, it may not be me that's posting it, but maybe it's somebody who knows me. Um, and I can see as an adult how this is very, it, it's, it's starting to, you know, kind of make my head explode here. Like, oh my gosh, you know, all this stuff that, well, I think about all the things that I do that are out there that I kind of do without thinking about. But then for students especially, because um, they, they may not have that credit history to ruin yet, but it could be ruined ahead of time or something may be done now that's going to impact their ability to do it later. Um, what, what is a parent to do? So keep track of what your students are posting, your children are posting online. Um, explain to them the value of not posting absolutely everything you're doing online all the time. Go in and look uh, where you're running your credit report on yourself, or you should be, having your free credit report run on yourself every year. Have that run on your children as well, um, hmm. so that you can take a look at what information has been posted uh, about them out there. Um, because if someone is using their identity before they're out there trying to apply for credit, if you're able to identify that before they really need to be able to use their credit. You're able to have the time necessary to clean it up. Cleaning up uh, items on your credit report doesn't happen overnight. So you're gonna need time to do that. And so if parents are checking just with that free annual credit report, that lets them keep everything clean until it's time for their children to take over. Okay, that's a. I think that's a very good idea. We never think about you don't think about getting a credit report on a 10-year-old child, but that may be the first step in acknowledging that something's gone on with that. So do um, things like the like locks that we see on TV, do those things actually work? Or are they no better than what you can do just taking a few extra precautions by yourself? Well, their skill set is in that they communicate with the credit bureaus, um, with the credit agencies, and with other large financial corporations on a daily basis. So they have a relationship with them. So when they contact them to clean up a situation, um, someone's used your credit and shouldn't have, it, they have that relationship. And so it's easier for them to get the job done. Um, it's less of a hassle for them than it will be for you to clean it up. So the service that you're paying for there is their help in correcting the mess. There's no way they can absolutely protect all of your data all the time. It just cannot be done. Um, but they do offer a really good service in that they'll save you the headache of having to sit on hold for hours and argue with people about how, no, your 10-year-old child really didn't go out and buy, a, you know, a 2020 Porsche. Right. right. So it, it, it is useful in that it saves you the aggravation if you have to have a cleanup. Right. And you may not. You may never have a breach, and so it may never be a problem. But in the case that it is, and, and I want to point out that, that we use the term life love just because that's the one that sticks in my mind because that's the one I see the commercials for the most. But, sure. 
we're not advocating for one over another. Right. Any of those services. Any yeah. of those services are good. Right. So as an IT, as, as someone who's training the next generation of information technology professionals, how much is cybersecurity, I guess, for lack of a better word, drilled into the heads of the, the people going out into that field? Do they know, or, or do we find that human nature kind of trumps common, or not even common knowledge, that comes, trumps common sense in this respect of, I know I should be doing this, but oh, yeah, it's just this one time. <laughs> so um, first off, when we're talking about college students, as a whole, they're a, they're a different generation. Um, and they value information sharing instead of information privacy. So they feel like um, posting information out there is not a, as big a deal as those of us that are a little older. Um, but they are very technologically savvy. Their savviness doesn't necessarily translate into understanding the full impact of everything that they're doing. So that's where, when they take classes in network security or cybersecurity, they start putting those pieces together um, and they realize they need to be a little more aware of what they're doing. It's not that they can't post it, it's just be aware of how you do it. Mm -hmm. um, so things like if you're going to a concert, don't post the pictures while you're there because that also advertises that you're not at home and so your home is vacant and able to be robbed, right? Wait until you've come home and then post the pictures of the concert. Um, so they're learning those little bits um, as they go through their programs, and that is going to help. So their cyber hygiene is being built in as they go along through their undergraduate program. It, it sort of seems like at some point, again, you mentioned middle school girls or middle school students much earlier, like the earlier we can start sort of instilling these behaviors in, in ourselves as, as a human race, the better, because then it becomes ingrained in something we're doing. Because, and I'm, I know there are two different basically types of hackers. There's the good hacker and the bad hacker, and we'll get to that in a second. But those bad hackers are out there. They're always trying to stay a step ahead. So the sooner we can start getting good habits developed, the better. Is that? Yes. So it, it really has to do with intention. If we can get... Um, our children in middle school to start thinking about the intent of what they're doing. Um, if, if they'll just take a minute and before they reply to something, um, and this is actually a good rule for us as well, right? Take a second before you just reply um, off the cuff with your initial response to think about, is it something you need to reply to? Should you reply to it? Um, how should you reply to it? Should this be a reply all or should it go to everybody? Um, a lot of those things that cause us to want to reply quickly are designed intentionally to do that. And that's one of the places where uh, hackers get a hold of us is it's clickbait. So they, they design it to create um, the, the need for us to respond quickly and not think about what we're doing. So if we can get them to just be intentional about what they're doing, They'll be less likely, likely to fall for clickbait. They'll also be less likely to fall for um, emotionally charged topics that, that get them into cases where cyberbullying can take place. So it tends to 
keep them out of a lot of trouble if we can just get them to start being very intentional about what they're doing, what they're posting, when and how. So does that have something to do with these terms that we hear often about a digital immigrant versus a digital native or a digital native is somebody who's grown up with this? Is that is that the right use of that term? It, right. So um, the researcher that came up with this, Prinsky, came up with this, and it's been 20 years now. Um, the basic idea was that some of us, by virtue of when we were born, are digital natives, and some of us, by virtue of when we were born, are digital immigrants. Um, so baby boomers are just by default immigrants. They, they didn't grow up with this technology, so what they are using, they've had to learn. They've had to make an effort to learn it. Um, where our undergraduates now, and anybody that's in high school or younger than that, they're all, they've grown up with, they're living in uh, a world that's always had internet connection. Everyone's always had their own personal cell phone. Uh, so they're by default just natives to all of this. And that goes back to the idea that I mentioned earlier about they're very tech savvy because they've just been born into it. Um, and then the rest of us have had to make some effort to learn how all of this stuff works. Well, yeah, I am one of those digital immigrants. Um, and, and I'm getting to the point where I'm like, okay, that's enough. I don't want to have to learn anything new <laughs> when it comes to, to all the different types of programming out there. And I guess that's another thing for parents. I mean, they constantly are hearing, oh, you know, no, Facebook is no longer the cool thing to do. Now it's Snapchat or now it's TikTok before that goes away. And now it's this and now it's that. And they're, they're having to run so fast to just keep up with what kids and I use the term lightly, it sort of intuitively know it's out there. So are there resources for parents to help them, like, hey, here's some things you might want to consider understanding? Right, and, and there are resources out there. Um, the resources change as quickly as, as these different apps change. Um, so there are kids that will decide they need uh, an app and they'll get together over a weekend, create one posted, and next thing you know, everybody's using it. So it, it, apps are very easy to develop depending on the type of, of app it is. But if it's something like um, sharing images or texting each other back and forth, it's, it's pretty easy to put one of those up. So it, there is this constant learning curve of having to, to learn new things, and then there's something else that comes along, as you said. Um, it, it's hard to keep up with it. And there isn't a single centralized location where you can go and learn absolutely everything. Um, YouTube is great. Mind you, anybody could post something on YouTube, so you have to use a little common sense and discretion about whether this is a useful video or not. But there are lots of places like YouTube, Wikipedia is another kind of example where anybody can post up there. But for the most part, you can get enough to figure out if you need to look into it further or not from those types of sites. Okay. I, I'm, again, I think my head is sort of exploding because there are things that I just haven't, even as an adult out in the world, been thinking about in terms of how am I keeping myself safe? Because I think, okay, you know, I'm in my house, shutting my doors, my, my internet is secure, everything's fine, but it's really not in, in the sense that, yeah, for the most part, it, okay, everything's cool, but 
just be mindful that don't become complacent, I guess is the way to look at it. Um, and thankfully, you know, no kids in the house, so I don't have to worry about that side of it, but I do have young kids in the family that are constantly, I mean, that is their world is on their tablets or their phones or their computers and want to make sure that they're staying safe now too. Um, now I know at Georgia Southern that we also have this um, Center for Applied Cyber Education. Can you tell me a little bit about that uh, program and that center as well? Sure. So that uh, actually came out of an effort from the NSA and the DOD. They wanted to have uh, secondary education and then they wanted to have um, colleges and universities set up programs that would design courses and um, fields of study around cyber. So um, that center supports a forensic accounting program that we have here at Georgia Southern, which is in, of course, uh, the College of Business. Um, then we've got a criminal justice program that looks at cyber crime. So it's not just IT, it's not just CS, it's lots of different disciplines that are part of that center and support it. Um, but the whole point of it was to make sure that we had um, elements of cybersecurity, cybercrime, um, forensics involved in lots of different programs so that the students that um, go through there have the ability to understand and to be ready for the job market and the world that's going to await them. Well, I think that's really a, a key point that you're bringing up is that we often think of CS and IT and these bubbles of that's the technology track, but these students that are going to be studying business, education even, uh, criminal justice, they have to have some tech savvy in there and have to be un understand how these fields relate. Um, and that opens up more avenues of possibilities. Um, criminal justice, you know, there's more degrees or more opportunities than just being a lawyer. You can be that, that forensic cybersecurity expert who's digging into somebody's personal information when there's a crime committed. Um, and, and I think we forget about those degrees and those opportunities that are out there for students. And that's, that's kind of inspiring to know that you don't have to be in this major to get a benefit from, from taking some of these classes. Yes, uh, there's a huge need for forensic accounting specialists. The FBI um, has a really big gap. They don't have enough people that have the accounting background and also the forensics that can put those two together and help them. Um, and the core of what they're doing there is not really brand new. It's just the tools they're using are what's new. Um, Al Capone was caught because of a forensic accountant recognizing that he had income he wasn't paying taxes on. Oh. So this is not all um, really brand new stuff. It's just the tools that are used to do it. So we still need forensic accountants and we need them to understand how the, the cyber world fits into that. Um, for criminal justice, we need them to be able to um, help us with the sociology side of things. So when there are geopolitical issues going on around the world that are causing lots of 20 something uh, young men to not have jobs because there's a war or an economic crunch or what have you going on, that tends to be a breeder for lots of um, black hat hackers. 
So the sociologists come in and help us figure out how we can manage that so they don't become hackers. Um, so there are lots of different areas that are involved in cybersecurity besides just the CSIT technical side of it. We need all of those other ones as well. Which I think circles back around to our comment that if all we're teaching in the secondary schools is that coding piece, we're missing a large chunk of potential um, information and career workforce development tools that we could be using if we're not tying that in to IT in the real world and it again to that cybersecurity, which is so important. Um, wow, I mean, I I never really even thought about the boredom factor of people who are in nations that are, heaven forbid, you know, at war in crisis or something else is going on. People sitting around, even in those environments, still have media, and they're they're what else are you going to do? Um, and that's a very simple way to look at that, but, you know, that might be the person who's getting in. I mean, in a lot of cases it is. It is. <laughs> so, um, well, Dr. Resnick, I, I cannot thank you enough. I would really like to talk further with you on this subject um, or on any of these subjects. I appreciate your time so much. Any last minute advice for anyone out there? Um, don't get overwhelmed. Yes, it can be scary, but it, it'll be all right. Just make sure you patch your software and don't use password one, two, three as your password. I got to go change my password. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Dr. Resnick. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars, brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at George Southern University. The opinions expressed here are those of the researchers and the host and not of Georgia Southern University or the University System of Georgia. We would like to give a shout out to Purple Planet for our bumper music. Join us next time for Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars.